I'm great. I'm going to read with you today Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord, what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is the word of the Lord. Our reading from the New Testament is uh, Romans chapter 5. I invite you, if you have a Bible, please do turn to that or or find it uh, on the screens behind me. But Romans chapter 5, I'll just be reading verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of of the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this new sermon series starting this morning and going all the way almost to Advent, that is, Uh, the end of November, early December, is abundant life in Christ, plentiful, abounding, bountiful, lavish, ample, profuse life in Christ. And you say to me, Pastor Greg, that's the most ridiculous idea for a sermon series in this time and age. Don't you know that as I look around me today in my world and living I and my own life, I don't really feel much about abundance. In fact, interest rates have gone up and up and up. Uh, food prices have gone up. Gas, is, everything is going up. Uh, I'm under pressure. I have other troubles in my life. I have relationship stresses in my life as well. I'm not sure about the future. What are you thinking about? Maybe the title should be The Shriveling Life, uh, The Scarce Life, The Difficult Life. And if you were to say that, you wouldn't be entirely wrong. Uh, There was a big study published just a few months ago arguing uh, that around the world in the last two years, around the whole world, not just one place in the world, but around the world in the last two years, uh, anxiety 
has gone up by 25%. I don't know how they measure that, but it was a, it was a study that was, was done by a worldwide organization that anxiety has gone up 25% across the world in the last little while. And they're calling for a wake-up call for us to really consider our own health as a globe and as a planet, that people are living more than ever in loneliness, fear, suffering, grief, pressures in their own life. Interestingly enough, this study argues that in the data they got back, they found this huge increase in anxiety and concern and scarcity in a certain segment of the population of the world, and that was particularly in, it said, quote-unquote, young people. Put yourself in that category if you want, whatever that category is, but that was the category they used. What does it mean for us in the context of our world today to have abundant life? a flourishing life, a growing life, a vital life, a large life. Pastor Greg, where are we going to turn to even consider such an outrageous sermon series title, Abundant Life in Christ? Well, we're going to turn, and uh, Pastor Bill will be preaching on this as well in October. Uh, you'll be, we'll be turning to the book of Romans. We're going to Romans to find what it means to have abundant life in Christ. It's a very famous theologian about 500 years ago called Martin Luther, and he wrote these words about the book of Romans. It's not only worth, worthy, but it's not only, not only worth that every Christian should know it, that is the book of Romans, word for word, by heart, but occupy himself with it every day, that is the book of Romans. He says, as the daily bread of the soul, it can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, with the, more, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. There's something about the kingdom of God. There's something about the life that Christ gives us that maybe at first glance is smaller than we may think it is. That is, the kingdom of God is the opposite. It's larger than we may think it is at first glance. I remember walking somewhere in the world, and it was an older city, and it was a stone pathway that I was walking up with stone walls on either side and mortar between the stones and the bottom and beside me. And looking forward, all I saw, I remember, was kind of stone. And the whole, sit, the whole city was built in these narrow laneways. Stone and dryness and hardness kind of before me and behind me, beside me where I looked. And I remember opening a door into one of the gardens in that city. And it's like you go from this dry, hard stone opening this door, and you look inside, and they have trees growing and flowers and water and greenery that you could not see from the outside. I, I hope and pray that as we enter into this sermon series on the book of Romans, on the abundant life in Christ, although it's going to be kind of heavy lifting, it's going to be, I think, kind of, kind of meaty as you try to work through part of the, the book of, of Romans. I, I hope that it'll be large for us, that 
will be fed deeply in our own lives for today, for living today, in the things that were, are before us and for those around us. I hope that we'll be fed deeply in our, in our souls. If we had to give the whole series away at the beginning, the series, you might just say um, that the truth of the gospel and the truth of, of the God who lives and is alive and who loves us is, as Tim Keller said, if, if, you, if you belong to Jesus, then everything that happens is ultimately for you. Well, I hope we'll look through just these now first two verses of Romans chapter 5 as we start into the very first part of this uh, section of this series. We'll look at two sections. We'll look at the reality of God's pardon, and then we'll look at the results. The reality of God's pardon, and then we'll look at the results, peace with God, access to grace, and hope of God's glory. So first, uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, the reality of God's pardon. There is a, a truth that we need to grasp here that the Apostle Paul has been spending four chapters outlining before he gets to Romans chapter 5. There's a truth and a reality that we need to grasp here that for some of us might feel like we've heard it a thousand times. For some of us, it, 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 I don't know, it might feel old. But there's a truth and a reality here that we need to grasp uh, and Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is an important one for us just to make sure we understand and maybe discover in new ways and have applied to our hearts in new ways. The Apostle Paul is laying down a reality here that is true for all time, that is true for the world in every place and every culture and every time. And we see in Romans chapter 1 how he, he gets into this uh, truth and he, he lays out this, this statement that there, there is a world that God has made, yet there are people, us included, people who, who are living in sin and therefore are bearing the wrath of God. That is that there is a God who has made this world perfect in beauty and all of its goodness. And, and, and Paul's now talking in chapter 1 not about his own people but about the rest of the world. Who, who sin and do not live in that absolute standard of God's goodness, which does exist eternally. And Paul says, look, because of that, God's, God's wrath is being poured on the world. God's, God's anger, that is, God is not pleased with sin. And then in chapter 2 of Romans, Paul gets deeper into this truth, saying that he, his own people, that is, the Jewish people of the time, of whom he is a part, he says for his own people, it's not just people all over the world, but his own local people too, uh, that are not living according to God's ways. And in chapter 3 of Romans, he comes to a, to a sort of a climax in his argument about the reality of the world and how the world is set up and what is going on. When he says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, no one is righteous, not one. And that word righteous is repeated 17 times in these opening four chapters. And there is a great um, truth to the fact that God is righteous and God is holy, yet uh, people are not living in that way, and that causes a great problem for a God who hates sin eternally and in the books of heaven. And what Paul says in chapter 4 is that there is a thing such as justification, which is possible, and he gives Old Testament uh, reasoning for this, 
that, 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 that we are able to be justified through faith in Christ. And that is the therefore that Paul is leaning on here in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith. There's a very famous definition of justification that I'll read. It's up on the screen here, I think, in a minute. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imparted to us and received by faith in Christ alone. We may have heard it a thousand times, but it's a reality that is the basis for everything on which our lives stand. Justification uh, by faith alone. Uh, Without it, without this truth, without this reality of God's pardon, all people in every place are, are lost to sin and are under the power of sin and the sentence of sin, which leads to death. And so there's an incredible uh, newness that God has made possible for eternity, uh, for all time, for those who put their faith in Christ, that sin is no longer our identity, but that the righteousness of Christ is. It's a new reality whereby God declares sinners righteous in his sight. Maybe this is a new idea for you. Maybe it's an idea that has become cold for you or hard for you, hard like a hardened heart for you. But all of us, no matter where we are in our lives, will come to a point, whether it's now or when Jesus returns, when we say, oh, Lord, Lord, I, I understand now. I understand the, 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 the truth of, of, of this world and, and your truth, how, how I've sinned, how powerless I am, how much I've failed. Lord, I realize it now, all the, the wrinkles of, 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 of sin and death and, and, and in my life, the pathways that have not led to flourishing. I, I realize it now, Lord, finally, that the problem is my sin. And Lord, thank you for the wonderful Savior of Jesus. As we put our faith in him, as we surrender our lives to Jesus, this work of justification eternally in the books of heaven uh, becomes applied to us, to my soul and to your soul. And friends, it's from that truth and from that reality of God's pardon, that once-for-all pardon in Christ, that that our life kind of goes forward from there, that we can open the old wooden door, as it were, of that garden in the dry, arid, dark city of scarceness and see the abundance and the results and the goodness that God has for us. So the second part of uh, we'll look at this morning is not only the reality of God's pardon, but the results of God's pardon. And it's kind of like skipping like when skipping the vegetables of a meal and going straight to the dessert because like chapter 1, 2, 3, 4 is kind of like all the hard, difficult stuff that we have to get into. But we're going right to chapter 5 and 6 where it's like the results, the benefits, the good things now, the results of you know, justification in faith. That sin in my life is trampled and the anger and wrath of God because of my sin 
has been assuaged, and we see only these results now. And there's three of them. I'll take the first one in chapter 5 and the second part of verse 1. The very first result here is we have peace with God. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's not talking about, um, you know, world peace. He's not talking about a a 1960s Beatles song about um, everyone getting along and and that kind of wide thing, political peace, for example, or absence of war kind of peace in the world. No. Paul is talking about something that comes before all of those things and which can lead to peace in those areas. He's talking about a spiritual peace. Do you have spiritual peace? Or do you have spiritual anxiety, guilt, mistrust, a guilty conscience? The kind of peace Paul is talking about, we can see in a relationship with someone you love, say you lie to them constantly, uh, there's going to be tension in that relationship. There's going to be problems. There's going to be bumps. There's going to be, you're going to feel guilty. Do you have spiritual peace in your soul that when I sin and mess up, I have a sense, as Job says in chapter 9, that I am right with God. The issue about having spiritual peace, and I've said it a little bit here, I'll say it again, but the issue with having spiritual peace is that the Bible teaches us that God, in His holiness, is a God who is hostile to sin. And His wrath is poured out on it. That's the point, that, 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 that we are kind of people who go our own way, we wander, we are In essence, at the very beginning, we are in conflict with God. Without putting our faith in Christ and trusting in the justification that God gives, we are in a fight with God. We are at war with God. We are in a battle with God, who is the the ultimate standard of truth and goodness. Uh, If we have not surrendered our lives to Christ, who gives us forgiveness of sin, we, in a way, are in a battle with God who hates sin. And we can see in, in, Rome, in, in um, Psalm 7, for example, we see God is one described who has his arrow pointed at sin. We can see in James chapter 2 these scathing words from the apostle about uh, the place and role of my own living and my own sin. We see it in Romans 1, 2, 3, and 4. Do I have spiritual peace with God? Is that, 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 that time, that, that sin in my life, that, that, that idea in my life that I'm going to live my own life my own way, that I'm going to live it my way and, and my way alone, come what may, if we are still there in our lives, then we are ultimately never going to find spiritual peace. We learn in the Bible that Paul says we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus, that when, when we put our faith in Christ, when we surrendered Him as our Savior, when we say, Lord, I can't make it, I can't live up to that perfection, then we are in a state of of peace with God. Peace with God. This is a a fact that that never changes. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling that's fleeting. It's peace with God is 
how I will stand on the last day when Christ returns, when he, the great judge, calls everyone to account. How is it that I will stand against uh, my living and my life against God's holiness and goodness? The peace with God is a fact that that we will have imparted to us the very righteousness of Christ, and that the God who is holy and other and perfect will see the righteousness and perfection of Jesus in you and in me. And the peace of God uh, is different. That might be something that we do feel at a time in our life, in a trial or in a difficulty. When World War II ended, And the battle that consumed uh, much of the world, Western world, ended. Bells rang across Europe. People sang and danced and rejoiced. And it's that kind of thing that has happened for us in Jesus Christ when we put our trust in him. That there's there's peace in in my heart. There's bells ringing. There's... There's a new state that will never change. Not through my work, but through what Jesus has done. Well, uh, we, we have first the peace with God as the first result of justification. Secondly, we have access to grace. Access to grace. We see in verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, that word at the beginning about access is, is just that. It's a, a Greek word that means uh, stepping into the presence of, say, a royal court or a king or someone in a place of, of authority, and you are, uh, you are brought in there. You are, you are invited in. You are, you've been given access into that place where you were not able or allowed to go. And what is it that we are given access to? What is the blessing? What is the result here? Well, it says we're given access by faith into grace. Access into grace. Is that an overused word? Do we hear that word all the time? Does that word just skim over our our heads and say, okay, I've heard that word 10,000 times. If we want to understand a little bit more about grace, just turn over back to Romans chapter 4. We'll do a little bit of heavy lifting here, a little bit of digging. But Romans chapter 4 and uh, verse 4, what is grace? What is this thing Paul is talking about, this amazing mind that God used at the beginning of the churches to explain uh, for Christians what it means, um, uh, what all of this means? He says in verse, chapter 4 and uh, verse 4 of Romans, he said, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. If you work, say, 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. one day, if you work, uh, you are due wages, right? You're due the benefit of your work. That's what you are due in a fair and just situation. But if you do no work or you cannot do the work that you need to do, will you still get the wages? Will you still get the benefit? Will you still get uh, what, you, uh, what, you, what, what you worked for if you don't work? Well, that's, a, that's the analogy Paul's using here about grace. 
With respect to God, we see time and time again in the Bible that we are debtors. There's economic language used to understand redemption and grace, that we are bought, it said in 1 Corinthians 6, with a price, that we are bought with a price. So one way to think about grace is is this, that, that although we do no work and cannot do the work that we need to be seen as righteous before God, that we receive the benefit anyway. There's grace. That Christ's merit, His work in us, gives us what we need for life even though we did not do anything or did the opposite of maybe what we might need to do. That is grace. And we can so easily miss in church world what grace is and the depths of God's grace. We, we can so easily think that Christianity is about being a better person, about being super righteous enough to impress God enough that I will be accepted by the one who made me. I will know love and forgiveness. God is not interested when it comes to our standing with him in our New Year's resolutions, in in, in, how, in, in, in how, 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 how righteous we think we are, how, how much we think we are doing. Christianity is not about trying to impress a God who calls us to live righteously. All of that is a response to his grace. David, in the Old Testament, is an amazing example of this. He... Uh, is a good man. He's a man after God's heart. He does a lot of really righteous things. But then lies, commits murder, does all kinds of crazy things. And what happens in Psalm 51? He cries out to God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew in me a right spirit. Restore to me the joy of uh, my salvation. The grace... Paul says that we gain access to in Jesus is something in which we stand, that there's a permanence to it, there's a continuance to it in the grace that we stand in. Uh, as, as a Christian, if you've surrendered your life to, to, to Christ, we, we approach God and we stand in his presence. It's in the perfect tense. It means we're going to be standing there. That is our relationship with God our sense of speaking to God as our Father, of relying on Him, of looking to Him for guidance, affirmation, our identity, is not something that is sporadic, but continuous. It's not something we're, we're standing in. It. So it means it's not something that's precarious, but it's secure. We're standing in the grace of God. That means that, means that we don't fall out of the grace of God like you might follow to the grace of a politician or a king or someone in authority. We don't follow to the grace of God. No, we stand, it says, in the grace of God. It's given us access. It's hard to think of a better example in the Bible about this idea of gaining access to grace than, and I probably said it a million times, but the story of the prodigal son in Luke, he is barred, he believes, from his father's house. He leaves his father's house. He pursues a, a way that leads to death. 
He comes to the bottom of the barrel and realizes that every book he's read is never going to lead him to spiritual peace, happiness, or life with God. And he comes to a place where he realizes how wrong he's gone in Luke. And he comes back to his father's house, and he believes he's going to be barred from that household. And, and he walks by, and he can see inside the house where the feast is, is, is set, where people are thriving, where there's, there's a sense of purpose and destiny, where there's enough. And he says, there's no way that I deserve to enter into that household, God, based on what I have done. And yet the father of the house comes out and says, what, I don't, I see what you've done, but I, I pardon you, I welcome you, I, I, gain, I give you access into my household again. He, he, he holds that son, the father does, so closely that the, fa- the son can, can feel the heartbeat of the father. The father marks him with signs of belonging, the ring and the sandals and the robe. And the father says, everything, everything, I, everything that I have is yours. That's the access that we have through uh, That's the access we have into the grace in which we now stand. So through justification, we have peace with God, access to grace, and finally, we read at the end of these verses, and we rejoice in the hope of God's glory. That is, we have hope. We have hope. We have the hope of God's glory. Well, what does that even mean, the hope of God's glory? What is it? How do, you, what, how do you take that? Again, a lot of theological words here. What do we mean by the hope of God's glory? How can this be helpful for us and understand it really today in our own living? Well, God's glory, the object of our hope, Paul says, is God's glory. God's glory is the manifestation of God's presence. Right? Remember Moses entered into the presence of God in Exodus and saw his glory. Ezekiel, at the beginning of Ezekiel, has a vision of the Lord God Almighty and this spinning throne. And the word God's glory is used to describe it. Isaiah has a vision uh, of God's courtroom. Holy, 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 the angels cried out, is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. God's glory is his radiant splendor that will be fully displayed one day. Now get this. One day, the hope of the Christian, the hope of the one who has been justified by faith, is that one day, God's glory will be revealed. (laughs) It's like we're living in a cloudy day now, And one day, all of a sudden, we will see the full, bright sun of the manifestation of God's presence. This is all throughout the New Testament. In Titus chapter 2, it says, Christ will appear one day in power and glory. What a statement that is. That this world that we are all looking at right now and toiling in now and have trials in right now, It is not actually God's final word for you or for me. This is how we get into the abundance of of our life now, the perspective that we take. 
That the, the final thing that we see now is not what we see around us, but that God, that the Lord Jesus will appear in glory finally at the end of time, Titus 2 and verse 3, that, that we are people who are created in the image of God, that we, that, that we are called to display God's glory as we even live now, that we are being changed in 2 Corinthians from one degree of glory to another, that all of us is, have fallen short of the glory of God, the presence of God, the perfection of God that we've fallen short of that in Romans 3 and verse 23 and cannot achieve it by ourselves. But one day, God's glory will appear. Christ, the risen and glorified Savior, will appear. In Romans chapter 8, creation is longing for the day, groaning for the day to be brought into glorious freedom. And in 1 John chapter 3, we are told that we ourselves will be transformed, that we shall, it says, become like him. That we'll become partakers in the glory of God. That we'll see Christ in all, of, all his glory. And those who are justified will be glorified. It's like Lazarus in the Bible, not the one who was raised from the dead, but in the parable Jesus tells, one day Lazarus is there, uh, he has no food, and the next day he's brought into heaven to a banquet table. One day Lazarus is there, the dogs are licking his wounds, and the next day angels are attending him. Our hope, the hope of the Christian, is in the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's your main pursuit? What is the object of your days? Where's your hope deep down? That you're going to fix all your problems? We're going to fix all our trials through trying harder, persevering? That's good. Have grit. Have perseverance. Here we're, we're called to hope most in the return of Jesus, the Savior, the King of the world. Well, as we wrap this up, let me ask you a couple of questions, a few more questions as we kind of just apply this a bit more to our life, and then we'll, we'll finish. As you think about this set of verses, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the reality of God's pardon, and the results that are so clearly laid out there. Do you have peace with God? Are you seeking peace with God? Deep down, do you have conflict? Uh, maybe, maybe you came to church for a second time this morning and you're just learning about all this, thinking about it. Um, do you have conflict? Do you have guilt? Do you have unease? When you pray, do you think, oh, God does not like me. God's angry at me. Um, do I have those kinds of approaches to God? Do you have peace with God? We're invited this morning to, to look to Christ and to his work and to receive him as the one who has saved us. Do you have peace with God? Is there a sin in your life that you've told no one about? Maybe, you're in a, maybe you are a Christian and, and 
And, and look, it's been going on forever. You know it has to stop. It's hurting you. It's hurting others. But there's no one you can tell. I really hope you'll stop bearing that burden alone. I really hope you'll speak to someone you trust and love. Uh, speak to an elder, maybe. Speak to me. Uh, that sin will destroy your life. Get it out in the open. The devil wants you to think that you have to deal with that all by yourself and that you're not worthy of help. Number two, about grace. Are you living uh, today in your own life as you think about the abundant life in Christ? If I had to look at myself, could, could I say, are, are you living out of grace? Are you living in your life out of grace? Uh, about about that, 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 that theology of we are given that which we don't deserve? Or am I living with others around me in the opposite of grace? Is the opposite of grace coming off of my life? That is a forced reciprocity. When I do something, I expect something back. Or is there a fragrance of abundance in my life and what I'm doing and how I'm living it? We live, of course, in a time and in a culture, I think in many ways, uh, that, that, that is without grace. That you get what you deserve. That when you say the wrong thing on social media, you are toast. Uh, that, 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 you, that, 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 that the needs that I have, the thoughts that I have, man, they, they are most important. And we don't see a lot of gracious abundance around us in our culture and time, but we do see despair and judgment. And thirdly, I want to ask you as you apply this message to your lives, you got the work to do this week, not me. I'm just asking you the questions. Number three, finally, where is hope placed? Where is your hope placed? Truly, 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 where is your hope placed? Is your hope placed in something that we see around you, something that you, you can do yourself fully and mostly, or is your hope actually in when that thing comes up against me, when that trial comes, when that trouble comes, is your hope actually truly in the glory of God, in the final manifestation of God's presence when, uh, when him who is light will be seen by all and everything made clear? Is there a sense with that hope that your soul is feasting on the good things of God? Or is your soul really feasting on other things? I saw this very, at the risk of making this entire message completely cheesy and trivial and frivolous. I saw this little post out on wherever it was, social media somewhere. Don't know why, but it just, I was like, wow, I'm going to have to share that one. You maybe heard it. I don't know who wrote it, if anybody did. When you have more than you need, it said, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. Now, when you have more than you need, it said, build a bigger table, not a higher fence. I'm not talking about theological universalism or anything like that. The reason that thing got me was, are we living in a sense of abundance? 
are our eyes on a sense of a final banquet with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we really directed on this Lord who died for us, who bled for us, who suffered for us on the cross, who died for us to give us eternal life and has been risen from the grave? Is, is, our, is our life kind of our eyes on the abundance of Christ when you have more than you need, build a bigger table, not a higher fence? Or are we living in spiritual scarcity whereby we must collect and do and forge all for me? Or to remember the prophecy that we will be called in Isaiah to a table set with fine foods, with rich foods in the Gospels, he will call those from east and west and to sit at table with me, Jesus says, in the kingdom of God. Put it this way. Do you have a sense today about the very vastness of God? That all of life is found in him. That at this table, we meet a Savior who is the Savior of, of the world, who is all in all, and who says, I've come to give you life, and life abundantly. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do confess that we need you so badly, and we often don't ask. And we do confess, Lord, that our souls at times are shriveled and are dominated by scarcity. But how we thank you, Lord, for your great love, for the vastness of your goodness and your presence, for the wonder of your eternity. Grant, Lord, that we may find our rest in Jesus the eternal Son. We pray in his name. Amen.